Hello and welcome to the pod. I'm Nathan Fink. I'm Jolyn Drennan and this is New Hampshire Family Now. A show about building family in the Granite State. Today on the show, Marie and I talk standards of quality and the FRCQ process. Then later, we're joined by Brenda Gugisberg of The Upper Room, who was just designated a Family Resource Center of Quality. New Hampshire Family Now is brought to you by the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. Since 1962, the Charitable Foundation has worked hand-in-hand with generous and visionary citizens to maximize the power of giving and support, collaborate, and lead innovative initiatives. Initiatives like New Hampshire Tomorrow, which is focused on making sure children and families have access to education, health care, and career pathways to ensure every family member thrives. To learn more about New Hampshire Charitable Foundation and all their initiatives, go to www. .nhcf.org. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Maria Doyle, Family Support Programs Manager at New Hampshire Children's Trust. Maria, thank you for coming on. Really happy to be here again. Later in the pod, I talked to Brenda Gugisberg, Executive Director of the Upper Room, who was just designated uh, Family Resource Center of Quality. And I thought it would be helpful to ask you, our resident expert on that process, standards of quality, FRCQ, what are these things and how do we describe them in a way that people understand their significance? Sure. So um, New Hampshire is really blessed with a diversity of grassroots family resource centers, all very different, all very diverse, but yet having some unifying principles. And that's really always been New Hampshire's strength with regard to family resource centers. But one of the challenges that goes along with that strength is there isn't any unified funding for family resource centers. They all are meeting out there trying to meet the needs of the community. And they do that with a combination of some completely private funded, some some with some public contracts for certain services they provide. And with the nobody really owning the term family resource center. So there might be a church that has a closed closet and they want to call that a family resource center. There might be a a hospital whose library is called their family resource center. So about 2011, there had been an opportunity for uh, some funding that was supposed to go to family resource centers that was in the state budget. And the question came up, well, who are these family resource centers that qualify for this funding? Basically, as sometimes happens with our state budget process, the, the funding went away and the funding went away really before a process with integrity was established that identified family resource centers. So the question arose among family resource centers, other advocates like New Hampshire Children's Trust, certainly Family Support New Hampshire being the network of family resource centers in New Hampshire, of what would it be like to create a process of deciding that family resource centers met certain criteria that qualified for them for funding. And so at the same time, the National Family Support Network approached Family Support New Hampshire about becoming a member and introduced us to the standards of quality for family strengthening and support. They're standards that are based on two important frameworks that all family resource centers already have at their core, which are the Strengthening Families Protective Factors Framework and the Principles of Family Support. These two frameworks, Strengthening Families Framework tells us we want to work with families in a strength-based way, as all family resource centers do. Principles of Family Support are nine principles that basically articulate working with families in equal partnership. So not like you go to the doctor's office and the doctor is the expert and you are the patient, but 
really families working uh, to make make the best world for their family and having professionals there who support them in doing that. Really an equal partnership. So when we saw these standards, they were like the language, the roadmap. These are what all family resource centers have in common. And people found the standards incredibly affirming. So Family Support New Hampshire and, the, and, the, and its membership uh, programs decided to adopt the standards, at least philosophically. And then as this uh, discussion started about could we create a process that would say what is a family resource center that um, has is meeting certain standards and um, that it should be a voluntary process. It should be non-regulatory. So we didn't want to do licensure or cred- credentialing is a, is a word that tends to be for individuals, not programs. Um, accredited also seems somewhat regular regulatory. So we came up with the word designated. So a program becomes designated as a family resource center of quality. And then the question came, who should designate? So we didn't want, we thought that someone like Family Support New Hampshire, like that would sort of be like to have members designating each other. Does it have the kind of credibility that really, like you can point to this as saying it deserves funding? The state, it seemed like that was became more regulatory if the state was doing the designation. We wanted it to be a voluntary, non-regulatory process. So the Wellness and Primary Prevention Council is a legislatively designated body that really came together in 1999 with the idea of promoting family resource centers in New Hampshire because family resource centers were seen as being a place where families could now we would say become strengthened and that that and that strength would help them face many of the challenges. So the WPPC is a is a body of um, a few legislators, one one House representative and one senator um, and representatives from family resource centers regionally around the state and the ex- executive directors or designees of people working in different spheres of prevention. So whether it be corrections, domestic domestic and sexual violence, New Hampshire Children's Trust is there as the child abuse prevention agency, substance abuse prevention is thought about there, good mental health is considered there. And this body, really the only body of people focused on primary prevention cross sector that convenes in New Hampshire, um, seem to be the perfect uh, body to look at look at this question and be the um, authority to designate family resource centers of quality. Now, you have created a standard. A standard has been created uh, where the FRCs can then be designated an FRCQ, Family Resource Center of Quality, by a body that has been empowered to designate that. Yes, the law that established the Wellness and Primary Prevention Council was actually amended in 2015 to give them the responsibility to designate family resource centers of quality. In addition to the national standards of quality, the Wellness and Primary Prevention Council developed the New Hampshire Operational Standards for Family Resource Centers of Quality. And the standards invite them to rate themselves on a continuum of quality. And when they reach a certain standard of quality, then they qualify for designation and are invited to apply. Do they attend to creating a welcoming environment for families? Do they have family-friendly policies for their staff? Do they put families at the center? Do their intake assessments involve assessing family strengths? Do they participate in their community to be make their community stronger? Do they evaluate their practices? Are they keeping participant lists? Are they doing surveys that give parents input and stake and other program participants as well as other stakeholders input to how they're doing? And then the operational standards speak to what is their staffing like? What are the what uh, training does their degree hold? What evidence-based practices are they using? Are they um, there's considered five core services of family resource centers and they need to have at least one service in each of the five core services. They can offer other services 
resources and many that really speaks to the individualized nature of um, family resource centers, but they must provide at least one program in each of the five services. You seem incredibly passionate about it. I think family resource centers aren't very well understood. I think some people think that they're only for families experiencing challenges. I think that they've lacked the funding that they've needed. And to have this way that affirms their practice to say, these are not random acts of kindness you're doing. This is not a sign you stuck in the lawn and said, come play with us here. This is like based on evidence informed or research informed ways of what it takes to keep families strong. And you are doing it. You are doing it as well as or maybe better than people all over the country are doing it. And here is this unbiased assessment that helps you figure out how well you're doing it and what are the areas you can improve. And I just think that's really affirming for these people that are doing so much, sometimes with so little and just deserve to be lifted up. And they deserve, I think family resource centers would benefit to be in every community in in our state and across America. And um, and I am passionate about it. I'm a passionate, I'm passionate about lifting these people up who are doing so much for just helping families be their best. And I think that that's the way we're going to get to a generation of children free from harm when, and not only free from harm, but really thriving and doing it by starting at the family, not by providing these, you know, just providing services, but really being places where families can discover and enjoy each other and discover what they're good at and discover and become leaders. And, you know, I just think it's just great. This has been a wonderful look at the process of Family Resource Center of Quality designation in the WPPC in the standards of quality that unify things across the board. Thank you so much, Maria. My pleasure. And when we come back, I'll be joined by Brenda Gugisberg, Executive Director of The Upper Room. Don't go anywhere. This podcast was brought to you by Nixon Peabody, who delivers exceptional legal services for clients in the community by combining high performance, an entrepreneurial spirit, deep engagement, and an unwavering commitment to a culture of collaboration, diversity, and humanity. Nixon Peabody works with universities, hospitals, and nonprofits of every size to maximize impact. For more information, visit nixonpeabody.com. Today's show was also brought to you by the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Child Advocacy and Protection Program, a multidisciplinary program with the Children's Hospital established to evaluate and provide integrative care to suspected victims of child maltreatment. Together, a team of physicians, advanced practice registered nurses, social workers, nurses, and child life specialists work to provide consultation and evaluations of children who are suspected victims of abuse, so to serve in the best interest of children and families at multiple levels of prevention. For more information about Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Child Advocacy Protection Program, visit www.chadkids.org backslash child advocacy. I'm happy to welcome Brenda Gugisberg, Executive Director at The Upper Room, a Family Resource Center in Derry, New Hampshire. Brenda, thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. First and foremost, I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about the history of The Upper Room, its programs, and all the things that you do. So the Upper Room is celebrating its 35th year this year. Um, it is a small nonprofit family resource center here in Southern New Hampshire. And its history began with our founders, Anna Willis and Claire Hamilton. They were school teachers and uh, recognized the need that parents had in raising their children. They also had a combined recognition that young parents who were having children and had not completed high school were in need of services. And so they 
started out um, the organization running parenting classes and working with teen parents. I'm happy to report that both of those two programs uh, continue to be at the, the foundation of what the Upper Room does. We believe very deeply in the roots of our organization. And so, um, yeah, so we've been here for a while in our current building, an old farmhouse, a rebuilt barn, uh, which is turned into our teen center um, right here in Derry, New Hampshire, uh, across the street from our local high school, which is great, Pinkerton Academy. It's cool to be on a street, you know, and our mental health center is down the street and we got Head Start around the corner. And, you know, so a lot of our uh, local agencies, their welfare departments and uh, some of our medical folks and met in hospital and public health network, all of those are literally within like a mile stretch. So we're really in a, a nice location, which is awesome. That is great. It seems like you're kind of this hub that's kind of uh, right in the center of all of the hustle and bustle. And in fact, last time I think I saw you, um, I accidentally walked through a, which you shouldn't do, a testing that was happening. Oh, um, maybe GED. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So we uh, run a high set program, which is formerly the GED, and um, we partner with our high school to provide a five day a week program. Uh, we run two cycles right now. We're running three to help uh, high school students who are looking for a different path to complete high school. So that has been a, a long standing uh, partnership, um, really formalized when the compulsory age changed in New Hampshire, and we became one of for um, centers across the state that was looked at to begin this kind of collaboration of services. And we have had a really nice relationship with our high school to continue on with that. We also see kids from other high schools um, who partner in from other uh, local high schools. Um, but it's a way for kids to uh, complete their high school education and also get some career and college support. We do a lot around job preparedness and uh, making sure kids are um, have the access to the information they need for financial aid and for college admissions and that kind of thing. Uh, military, we have kids in the military. So it's a pretty inclusive program. And we're really excited this year. In fact, we've uh, taken in a lot more kids than normal, which is really interesting. You'd think in a pandemic, we, we might not. But because we were able to offer three different versions, we offered an in-person, a hybrid, and a virtual, we were able to be really creative about some of our offerings and actually serve more kids because we didn't have to worry about the space thing. So that was an interesting uh, benefit of, of the pandemic is that we were able to serve more kids differently. Do you foresee that kind of hybrid offering going to continue well into the future? You know, I can see that with, you know, many of our programs. We have 16 programs that run out of here, just our base core programs. And, um, I, I see that we will probably have virtual options as a component of most of them. Um, it reduces the barriers for transportation, for child care. It may reduce the barrier of someone feeling judged or feeling like they may not belong. And so they may show up at a group and realize, hey, this is really cool. And they don't have to feel awkward about leaving a room. They can just click out if they don't, if it doesn't work for them. But we, we've actually seen an increase in some of our parenting programs and groups, which is definitely not what we thought we would see. And and, and been a beautiful and wonderful, exciting um, fallout, I guess, if you can, if that's what you want to call it, you know. Well, that's true. Yeah, I've joined a few uh, groups myself and I always set my uh, camera up in the cleanest corner of my house. <laughs> and there's only two. And I'll tell you, one of them right now is no longer, actually, both of them are no longer clean. Um, you had said that you are a relatively small staff. Tell me about the size of your organization. How large are you? 
Right. So we have um, eight full-time staff and we have 14 what we call part-time or adjunct staff. Um, and then we have a couple of folks who substitute or provide clinical supervision for some of our clinical people. So we are a, a small, maybe not small, we have, you know, 24 people on, on board, but we get a lot of work done with, right. with so uh, folks are you know, fairly well versed. We've got people from a lot of different, uh, with a lot of different skills, mental health skills, education, marketing. We've got some folks who have IT development, that kind of thing. So it's nice to have the um, myriad of experiences that help make our day-to-day more pulsable, if that is even a word. But I, I really feel like the diversity of the people we have working here really creates a wonderful blend. Um, do you have a sense of how many families or individuals you're seeing annually? Yeah. So our number is around 15,000. It's a little over that. We see about, on average, around 4,000 people in person for services throughout the year. The other folks um, represent our resource and referral program, which is very understated, but very much used. Um, so we have a lot of folks that call in and will need help on housing or where to find support for their parent or how to get an assessment for their child or um, they're looking for counseling or, or, you know, where to get their taxes done, you know. So it could be a variety of things. We also are a resource to our local police departments, our school social workers, um, our welfare offices um, and other agencies. You know, we try to be a partner with a lot of other organizations so that we're all kind of carrying a piece of that weight. Yeah. Um, That's what I've been learning as well, is that just the the depth of how embedded uh, family resource centers are in the community and, and their, you know, the collaborations that keep them connected to families and just how deep those go. I also understand, and congratulations once again, I understand that you were designated a family resource center of quality by the Wellness and Primary Prevention Council. So what is the uh, resource center of quality designation entail? Um, well, it's a, a fairly in-depth process that we intentionally engaged in, and it put our staff, our clients, our board through kind of a rigorous assessment of how are we doing and what are we doing and why are we doing it? Looking at our policies, our practices, our procedures, um, how are we delivering services? How do we welcome people? What are we missing? And it was a really thorough, and how is our finance and how do people function? You know, all of those functionalities of a nonprofit. And it really was a, a in-depth look at from like another lens, not mine, but really from another lens, uh, how are we doing? It's quite a process. I have to say it's humbling. It's eye-opening. It's definitely an educational experience. And so it was well worth it. I can't imagine approaching something that in-depth. I mean, you ask me to get some blood work done. I'm like, no, thank you. But uh, for the for the health of an entire organization and all of the folks you serve, and then all of the, the people that are on staff, I mean, that had to be a little bit intimidating even to approach. It, you know, it is. It, it's intimidating and in that it is a lot of work, but I think it's absolutely essential to understand, um, you know, organizations, particularly those with deep rooted um, roots in their communities or whatever can exist and people just kind of know what to expect, know what, you know, but when you really step back and look at, all right, so we've been doing this for X amount of years. Is this the most effective way? Is it the most practical way? Is it meeting the current needs? Are we hitting the trend? You know, what's the mark right now? And so being able to step back and look at that from a fresh um, perspective, I think is really important. And it also reinforces some of the things that we are doing well, which I think was a really nice um, a combination of the experience. 
Do you have some specific examples kind of of those categories that you named? What did you learn about the process or what did you learn about yourselves from the process that you wouldn't have otherwise? So I think um, one of the first things that we learned was that we are understated, that we, you know, as we were going, uh, assessing ourselves as to where we fell, um, we didn't recognize how far we actually were in doing things okay or or even well. And so going into it, I think we went in thinking, oh, we got all this stuff to do. So that was kind of eye-opening and actually refreshing. There's also some things we weren't doing awesome. There's some policies that definitely needed upgrading. I think when we interpret diversity and inclusion, there were some things that we needed to improve upon. You know, in learning, I think the one thing we know we do at least and it was reinforced is our welcoming. Like we want all people to feel welcome, but in, in looking at our diversity policies and, and how we include people in our practices, we recognize, wow, like how, how would a person speaking another language feel coming into our organization or how, you know, so it really gave us pause to look at some of the things that are super important, particularly now in this time, but in general, just really, how are we serving our community? So I, I also think that one of the things we recognized through this process is that this is never over, that this will be an ongoing expectation of being a center of quality, that you are constantly in assessment and looking for improvement and ready to move when the needle needs to be moved. Yeah. And that was, I think for me, like, oh, that's right. This isn't done. Like this is this is an intentional act of work. For an organization, it seems almost place finding because you realize that, you know, what your effect and impact is, especially if you're understated and that you are, in fact, a system. And a lot of people depend on it. And a lot of other organizations, like you're saying, public safety, high school, all of these folks have come to really appreciate the services that you provide. And then the kind of the flip side of that is what does that require of you going forward? And like you said, cultures change, people change, organizations change change, communities change. Are you changing with it? Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I think part of this process is really, um, it, it, it makes you look from the ground up. So when I hire somebody, how am I onboarding them and how am I preparing them to be in that change mindset and that being familiar with what the trends are and how do I build, you know, how do we build as family resource centers, succession and leadership so that as executive directors move out or on that, um, the new staff can continue those, that evolution of change. And so I think that's really important that every single little piece from the way you do finances to the way you're hiring people to how people are getting trained is just looked at and that we take the time to do that. And that's part of this process is that this takes time. And sometimes we're like, I don't have time, right? I mean, particularly this past year, it's like, well, I really don't have time. And yet there we go. We apply for this designation during the pandemic. Um, how do you see this? Because, you know, when you think about a process like a standard of quality, it looks like a lot of administrative self-reflection, which I'm all about self-reflection and continuous self-reflection. But how does that then play out practically, say, for families or individuals that come through your door? So, you know, I think in terms of how it impacts the folks here, it, because we're going through an ongoing assessment, constant assessment, and because the clients, the people we serve are actually part of that feedback loop, it gives us an opportunity to use the feedback that they're giving us, make sure we're asking for that, and also be, um, be ready and prepared 
to know that we're going to have to shift and change as we've improved our or changed our policies and our procedures and practices. We also are we need to assess how that's impacting people now. Right. So I've made those changes. We've made those changes. And is that working? So six months from now, when we do our next set of assessments or as we're doing ongoing assessments with families. So is this new working for you? Is this is this way of doing business working for you? And if it isn't, then we need to change it. Not six months from now or six years from now. But what do we change now? So I look at this. Is it not waiting for a problem to occur, but making an opportunity for us to be gaining that feedback now so that we can make the change before there's a problem. You are one of a few centers now that have been designated Family Resource Center of Quality. How does something like this affect the overall system of family support in New Hampshire? Well, one is I have so much respect for anybody who has done or is even thinking about doing this. You know, I understand how much work and how much intention and how much dedication and commitment it takes. I also think that um, this process, it reinforces our likenesses and our similarities in providing, you know, in delivering services that represent the true family strengthening and support systems that we're all, while we may have different programs, and we may have different um, um, delivery methods that we're using a similar pla- a, a similar um, set of ideals or principles mm-hmm. to do our work. And that's really cool. That's really um, sweet to have a, a bunch of other organizations speaking your language, so to speak. And particularly this year, as, as more of us are um, engaging or doing this work, but certainly through this pandemic, as we've worked together as a network, I'm seeing... Um, the beauty of our similarities and our familiarities really um, helping us each to have the confidence to do our work in this way or a little bit differently or to use each other for ideas or resources. So Brenda, thank you so much for being here. It was wonderful to speaking with you today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here too, Nathan. Thank you. To learn more about the Upper Room and all the programs they provide, go to urteachers.org. That is the letter U, the letter R, teachers.org. Many thanks to New Hampshire's Office of Social and Emotional Wellness for sponsoring this podcast. Started within New Hampshire's Department of Education, the Office of Social and Emotional Wellness consolidates policy development and implements projects and programs that are focused on health and wellness with an emphasis on behavioral health of all students, youth, and families. To learn more about the Department of Education and its many programs and approaches, visit www.education.nh.gov.